Hi, I'm Stuart McLeod, CEO and co-founder of Carbon. Welcome to the Accounting Leaders Podcast, the show where I go behind the scenes with the world's top accounting leaders. Today, I'm joined by Jason Statz, CPA and MBA and partner at Brenner and Company, an Oregon-based full-service accounting firm a one-of-a-kind accountant, Jason is a prolific digital and social content creator. He runs Realize, an online community for accounting firm owners. He owns a YouTube channel and co-hosts Automation Town, a podcast about regular people building no-code automation for the problems we all share. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Accounting Leaders podcast, Jason Stats. Jason Stat, welcome to the Accounting Leaders podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. Uh, you've got big shoes to fill. Your uh, friend, colleague, and co-host, Chad Davis, and I go way back, and uh, he's been on the podcast a couple of times, probably driving through the middle of nowhere in his RV at the moment, right? Probably, yeah. Or <laughs> pumping the RV out or something that you and I don't want to be doing. <laughs> well, got... We're not a camping family, right? I, haven't, I don't think I've told him this one. We're not a camping firm, but we live in a pretty outdoorsy space uh, in at the top of Lake, North Lake Tahoe. So a lot of our friends are a little bit more outdoorsy than than we are. I mean, I, I love skiing I, and being out on the lake and do all that, but it doesn't translate into you know being on the road for four years. Anyway, we thought we'd join the other team, other side, right? Like we'd go to the dark side, and friends of ours uh, rented a caravan, and we. we we rented this this 40-foot, like, proper fucking bus, right? <laughs> my my then eight-year-old got to be known as the rolling turd. You know, all these all these RVs are brown, right? So whenever we, <laughs> whenever we pass one, she calls it the rolling turd. Anyway, so what happened was, like, have you ever driven one of these fucking things? They're, they are enormous. Like, you know, I can drive a Land Rover Discovery or something, but I'd never driven a 40-foot bus. And so the the um, the orientation, right, like for this thing, <laughs> from the this guy's 250 grand bus, he turns up, he pulls this thing into our street, into a suburban street, and gives me, the, like, it takes like five hours to do the orientation. It's got things that fucking move and in and out and all up and down and hydraulics that make this thing go from, you know, 10 foot wide to 30 foot wide. Fair Dingham has got like nine systems. It's like it's like engineers just came and spewed up in it and put their toilets and everything and their hydraulics and their water and their grey water and their heating and their cooling and their lighting and everything. Anyway, we got through the first day. We drove like 200 miles, 300 miles. There's absolutely no problems. I thought, fuck, how easy is this? Didn't hit a thing. Didn't knock over anything. And first 30 seconds of day two <laughs> i took its corner too sharply and i put a rock through the whole toiletry and water systems oh wow <laughs> and bent the chassis Ooh. <laughs> and so and i i ended up writing the whole thing off for the guy who was lucky because that's what he wanted but um yeah to get your deposit back on that one no no <laughs> <laughs> I, I owned a ruined toiletry system in a fucking RV. So anyway, in our family, all RVs are now referred to as rolling turds. And that's about <laughs> as camping as we get in this family. Are you much more proficient? <laughs> no, I like being near the uh, near the outdoors. I like yeah. 
the adjacency, but I'm still fundamentally an indoorsman. I've got a whole bunch of young kids and it's just maybe another season of life, but not today. Yeah, well, I think we're aligned there. Chad can have his life on the road and uh, I'll, I'll happily sleep in my very stable bed without having to roll out to turn the hydraulics in and out every day. And how old are your kids then living in Oregon? This is a deliberate decision to uh, raise out kids that aren't on the iPad 100% of the time. Yeah, we've got three that are five and under. Mm. So there's a bit of iPad co-parenting, hopefully not too much. Yeah. But that many kids that young, that's the whole thing. Three under five. Yeah, well done. You belted them out pretty quickly. Not according to plan. The, the first one was <laughs> the first one was the only one we actually planned, and we probably would have stopped there, but they just they kept coming. So we're doing something wrong. <laughs> did you skip that lesson in year nine? Did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but that's good though. They'll grow up hating each other until they're eighteen, and then they'll love each other for decades to come. Right? As soon as they leave the house. Yeah. Yeah. They'll keep themselves amused. Hopefully you won't have to do all the, all the work forever, right? We've got that working for us. Yeah, they're best buds and they, they can play together. And I had enough of a gap with my siblings where we couldn't do that. So it's good. Yeah, we went, we're 12, 10, 4. And so the 12-year-old is charging exorbitant rates to babysit the four-year-old. <laughs> She's got the American capitalism working for her. <laughs> sure, yeah. Now, you're a partner at Brenner & Company. Tell me how you came to accounting and what your journey was, you know, leading up to your first job. Start at the start, eh? Well, I got three years into a computer science degree and then backed out of that at the last minute. And it was the shortest path to an undergrad was accounting. Right. That was as much thought as went into it. Yeah, good. I got an internship that paid better than my buddies with an accounting firm and haven't figured out how to get out yet. That was- <laughs> It's working on- on X. What happened to the computer science? <laughs> were, you, were you not just not good at COBOL or, uh, or C++? In retrospect, it was in the moment, you don't know how much your peers and your professors influence you into thinking what you're capable and not capable of doing. But I had a couple rough classes. It's really the yeah. first time in my academic career that I really struggled with something. What was that? Oh, uh, what was it? I think it was... Client server systems. I got. I think I got my oh. first D of my life. <laughs> Anyways, that's that's a whole thing. But ended up going away from that. The big four, like big regional hustle, never appealed to me. So I went to work for a small firm. Left that to go to a different one, and then bought the firm I was at, and then eventually bought that second firm that I moved into, and I own it now with a partner. And the no, hang on, you don't get to get away with it that quickly. Uh, so there's, there's some irony around failing client service. I think maybe you had some uh, <laughs> you, you had some foresight into the cloud industry, right? <laughs> you didn't need client server architecture or whatever it was, and your professor was sailing you up a shit river. <laughs> yeah, no, in ret I guess I hadn't thought about that in retrospect. If you need anyone to build a badminton ladder system with Apache and what else? PHP, uh, yeah, yep. it's... Something that's kind of gone by the wayside since then. There you go. The um, install on-prem expert. Yeah. That's why maybe. And so flipped out of there, uh, thought, fuck, I've wasted three years. I've got to get this thing over and done with pretty quickly. And so accounting was the fastest path to a job. Yeah, really business was, it was an easy sidestep, but I had enough credits to where I could do two degrees in four years. And so I, the accounting was kind of the, attack on and 
I was never that person that grew up with a real clear vision of here's exactly what I want to be. So mm. I ended up kind of just being what I fell into and, and here we are. And so your intern job, so where, where was this in, in Oregon? Yep. Salem, Oregon. Grew up there and joined a local firm. Yep. Local firm. I think there were six staff when I joined. Yeah. Small shop, just doing SMB stuff. And that's kind of where my love of like the real small business and that sort of thing started. Well, let's talk about that. The love of small business. What well, do you remember your first client? See, I was 19 at the time. So there, there's a bit of a buffer there before they actually show the client <laughs> who's doing their work uh, when you're at that stage. But man, I, one of my first projects was this company that hadn't filed tax returns in about five years. And it was just mm -hmm. the big eye opener there was you realize with small businesses, 80% of tax work is actually accounting work. And just the fact that until you're of the size where you can afford a controller or a CFO, it, it means that person's mom or, or themselves or their spouse are doing the bookkeeping. And that's just kind of part of the small business experience. And you were doing this catch up work, which, uh, you know, reinventing history is not that easy, right? Not if you want it to be accurate. No. <laughs> and it's close enough at that point. Yeah. <laughs> and a as you worked your way up at that firm, what was sort of the changing dynamics? What sort of clients did they have? And you mentioned a love of small business. What perpetuated this? What's there for us to really chew on? Yeah, it was one of those small firms that does anything and everything, uh, whatever they could get to walk in the door. And honestly, that that was really fascinating to me early days. I think if I had come into this firm that was mega niche from day one, I would have been exposed to less. But just the ingenuity and and kind of entre entrepreneurship in general and and... I think it's easy to lose perspective of what a privilege it is to have access to the relationships that we have. The type of people that are going out and spinning up their own businesses with that kind of entrepreneurial spirit, there's not that many of those people, but mm. you build a business like this and you're able to surround yourself with those people every day, which is a really unique opportunity. So mm. I think I just found I enjoyed those people. I think they were like-minded and I could relate with them more so than people you bump into in your personal life who, who aren't the entrepreneurship type. All right. And so as you're sort of growing up in the accounting world, you're getting wide variety of experience with various small businesses. Do you start sort of developing your career accordingly and thinking about what's next and, and how to perhaps shape uh, where you end up? Or was it, are you still doing that? <laughs> oh, I think you're always doing that to a degree. Going to the next firm I was at, which was a little larger, not still not large by kind of the grand scheme of things, but it's about a 30 team of about 30. And I learned through that firm that actually what I really enjoyed was more the internal aspects of running the firm. So yep. developing those systems, kind of how you position the firm from a strategy standpoint, how you get a consistent lead inflow and specialize and you know how team members slot into all of that i learned i learned that was the part of it that i enjoyed the most yeah and so operational i can relate to that operational efficiency and effectiveness is a thing for you producing great results time and time again is not that easy right <laughs> no not in what we do that's so much of it that has to be bespoke to each engagement it's a balancing act trying to create a turnkey of a process for that as possible 
not only for the work that you're doing, but also for how you develop your people and how to how to get everybody up to up to the same level and all that. How is your love sort of translated into your own firm these days? How do you look at the operations of your firm and the people aspect of it? Well, I think you know it's everybody knows it's a challenge to get the right people plugged in and in every industry, but I think it comes back to are you doing something compelling that people can get excited about? And if you're running a run-of-the-mill firm that just does what people expect, I don't know that that's a very lucrative way to attract people to your flavor of accounting. So now it's really doing compelling things within a firm, not only because it's a better way to to help our clients and build a more profitable practice, but also because it's kind of your way of putting a stamp on the industry that other people will notice and then engage with and, and come work with you in one way or another. So what you're saying there is if you can develop purpose for your firm and deliver greatness for your clients and work with customers, clients that people enjoy working with, you will attract great people to your firm. It's just like attracting clients. Like why would a client choose you over someone else, another firm? I think you can look at hiring the same way. What is What makes you a compelling place to work and and how are you going to enable those people better than the other firm across the street? And what's the purpose that you've developed at Brenner and Company? How do you view what you deliver to the world? Most of what I talk about outwardly is around automation and then around community building. So finding the other firms that are doing similar things to you and coming together and everybody getting better together. So the folks we attract are the folks who are leaning into tech to a certain degree, but also just are fundamentally bought into how do you build a a higher leverage version of an accounting firm that's not exclusively built around one-on-one services and is leaning a little more into one-to-many services, service lines that are more suited to be automated and how you mesh that with the problems that a specific client demographic has. Okay, well, let's dig into automation. What's the tech stack look like at Brenner and Co. And, and how do you think about the ongoing development of your tech stack? Yeah, I, so many accounting and tax problems are data problems, either the quality of the data or not having access to the data. In the U.S. here, tax firms especially have been reliant upon a lot of legacy systems that don't give you access to the data you need to be able to integrate things and and do stuff on an automated basis. So from where I came into the firm maybe 10 years ago, the main push has been to get the entire stack onto cloud-native SaaS platforms where you've got access to your data. So there's still a lot of tools in our industry that even SaaS tools who don't have an API or won't give you access to your own data. And I think people feel this pain most when they switch systems and they realize all of that data we had in the old system, it's not going to come over. We don't have access to that. So building your firm on a, on a stack of systems where you've got access to your own data, you have the ability to integrate that stuff yourself. And there's never a risk of you somehow losing that kind of that record of what you've done because it's fundamentally your data. What's the tech stack look like today? Like what are specific apps we're using? Yeah. Yeah. We got Canopy for our practice management system. You want to you talk about that? Go for it. No, so running practice <laughs> management on Canopy, we've historically been a zero first firm. So yep. in our cast practice, we've got about 80 clients on zero, but we've got about 800 tax clients that just bring what they bring. So that's 
a split of QuickBooks Online, some proprietary stuff, a little bit of QuickBooks Desktop. So on the on the tax side, it's a little bit of everything. But yeah, we're looking for the systems that will let us, you know, stage client requests in our practice management system so that it's following up with people automatically. So that's not a human function reaching out and just asking for things. I think that's a, a big waste of human effort. And then what are the systems that'll all talk to each other? I mean, it's shocking in our industry, something as trivial as onboarding a client or a client being able to change their street address and that update across all of your systems from your tax software and their personal tax return and their business tax return and the K-1s that are associated with them on business tax returns, your practice management system, your, your proposal software, like the notion of a client being able to log into a system and change an address and an update in all of your systems as an accounting firm right now, that's a groundbreaking thing. And that's actually a huge technical challenge. It absolutely shouldn't be. But just like, you know, what are the steps we can take each day to make all those systems work a little better together? And how do you do it today? A whole lot of duct tape. So, you know, we're running proposals through Ignition, our company accounting files and QBO. So honestly, the reality is anytime those changes happen, you have to have a, a, in my mind, you have to have a main core source of truth and then trigger the other updates on that source of truth. So somebody changes a client address in, in Canopy, that kicks off a Zapier scenario or a Make scenario that then updates all the other systems that are cloud enabled or do have an API. But then in the end, we still have a digest of, hey, here are those three other places that we can update automatically. And that goes to an admin and they have to hop in and make those changes. So it's a, honestly, it's a still a real hodgepodge. Mm. You would think it should be easier. So, so you mentioned Zapier and Integromat or Make. You run a podcast on called Automation Town. That this low code, no code automation. What are the benefits for a start? And then we'll get into some of the other aspects of it. Uh, right or wrong, I think the accounting system is is the backbone of a small business. For most of those companies, it's their first CRM. It's kind of that. There's usually more data there than there is anywhere else. And with small businesses, you have that stuff in a whole bunch of different systems. But when it comes to kind of orchestrating where all that data goes and being able to automate that, I really don't think there's anybody better positioned to be able to make that stuff happen than accountants. Because everything from invoicing to how bills get paid, to how you onboard employees, all that stuff runs through the systems that we oversee. So you're kind of in the driver's seat to kind of be the ultimate operator and how all that stuff happens. So automation use cases are always very business specific. There's a lot of business specific logic that goes into those things. But things as simple as person owns six related companies and you get an IT bill and you have to split it across six company files, you can either go up market to a accounting system that'll cost tens of thousands of dollars to support, you know, all those business entities. Multi-entities sort of billing, yeah. Yeah. Or you know what we do is is we've got zaps, we've got make scenarios where say you get say you get that email invoice from the IT company every month. You got an email rule that routes it somewhere else. You know, the amount, the date, all that stuff gets parsed out of the email and then it automatically posts it to, you know, as many accounting files as you need to and sends out invoices if one company has to pay another and all that. So it's a big unlock. I'm obviously I'm you know, a, a big proponent of it. I think it's a, a step change in, in productivity for not just accountants, but for knowledge workers in general. They're kind of becoming these quasi-developers. 
But yeah, when it comes to small business, I mean, accountants are in the best place to really lean into that stuff. Yeah. And so what you're saying is that gives your knowledge of operations and systems is giving your clients an advantage that they can uh, perhaps just reduce the manual labor that goes on in the, in their organization and you can help them become a bit more effective, a bit more efficient. Is that fair? Yeah. Because everybody's, everybody's bottlenecked on hiring right now. People have never been, mm. people have never been more ready to spend on automation because yeah. they know the cost of not having the right person or not being able to get a job done. Yeah. I mean, whole industries have come up <laughs> and, and geographies have come up in the world with, um, with that same theory and but you know like the 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 indias and the philippines and everything and the chinas are getting more expensive labor wise as well so the the value chain changes over time yeah what about the complexity of of the no code scenarios though right like one thing does one thing and then you know all of a sudden there's a whole lot of st stuff that's going on that you got no idea how it actually occurred yeah has that happened oh for sure it doesn't require code, but at the end of the day, it's still development. And there's good and yeah. bad ways to do development, documentation, and what does that look like for yourself versus what does it look like in a team environment? And that's not something that an accountant who just started stumbling through some of this stuff is just going to know. Mm. That being said, you got to start somewhere. Yep. The best and the worst thing about this is nobody identifies as that automation expert. Yeah. You know, you're an accountant. You don't you don't do that stuff. Yeah. But the person that's best positioned to do that stuff is the one that has a really deep understanding of of the problems that need solving. So that's you. So the best people to adopt it are the ones with that really deep understanding, but nobody identifies as the type of person that's going to carve out half a day to learn this new thing and do it themselves. So you get people who take to it naturally, who just really enjoy it and would be poking around on that stuff mm. anyway. But for the rest of people, they're impressed and they want it. They want to know what's possible, but they still don't identify as the sort of person that that would take it up and do it themselves. So they end up kind of stuck between this in this position of do I go out and hire somebody to do this who doesn't quite understand it? And that's I think that's kind of the state of things right now. Hmm. Yeah, it can be a bit of a halfway house, which neither absolutely nailed nor just starting. Yeah. A lot of businesses have that same issue, right, with the rise of no code. When Zapier was, you know, by far the the earliest and sort of the first, you know, and, and, a, and a great success story too. I mean, they're, they're, a re, they're a remote before remote was even a thing. They were yeah. unfunded before being unfunded was even a thing. Yeah. And the rise of Trey and Integramat and, you know, now iPaaS as a whole platform, as a service, as a whole thing. People are able to build integrations without doing point-to-point -point code and all this kind of stuff, right? So the automation and low-code, no-code world is is only growing, that's for sure. But it's, I think the challenge is like how to manage it, how, how to, you know, bring it about in your world in a way that makes sense, in a way that you can control, in a way that you can get most of the benefit without it causing uh chaos and mayhem. <laughs> no, it, it can be it can become a real a real tangled web. It can absolutely become a mess. It's something that for me, you know, I've learned just through doing it wrong a bunch of times and and seeing what works with the team and what doesn't work with the team. But at the end of the day, you're still automating something that would otherwise have to be done manually by a human. So yeah. where I think a lot of people get tripped up is 
am I, you know, still having to fiddle with this and that? And what if I got to hop in there every few months and still tinker with this and that? The reality is that can happen. You've got unstable sources for data and stuff like that. Things aren't coming through as you'd yep. expect. That stuff happens. But I think the future of work is is more living in concert with the kind of tools that you create because it's still mm. fundamentally higher leverage than not taking the time or ever investing the time and and building that stuff and just kind of succumbing to doing that stuff manually until the end of time. But it's there's so much nuance there. There's stuff that's suited for it that works really well. There's stuff that isn't as suited for it. So it's, yeah, it's a whole kind of new dimension to working, I think. Mm. And you run uh, Realize also related, which is an, uh, an online accounting community for tech progressive accountants. Tell us about that. Yeah, so as a firm runner, I always learned the most simply by sitting in a room with other firm owners that have firms similar to myself. So the most energizing, most helpful conversations I've ever had have been with people who run firms like mine. And you know, I think online communities are are the best of the internet. You've got mass communities like Twitter and stuff like that, which have their upsides and downsides. But <laughs> now with online communities, I've never collaborated with another accounting firm in my town, but I've met hundreds of people online who run firms just like mine that I've learned from. So the the kind of impetus for that community and how it started was just to have a private space to meet other people doing similar things to yourself. And that's it. And the rest kind of takes care of itself. So we hmm. we match make mastermind groups of, you know, four or five firm runners that run similar firms. But, you know, it's not really a education community as much as it is just a space to give permission, you know, to pull in hmm. collaborative people who are open to sharing their live client setups and how they do renewals and how they do all these different hmm. things. And that's always been for me the most impactful way to learn. And what has been one of the things that you've you've sort of you've got out most of from this community? Is is there an accounting firm or somebody that you've worked with that has just come a long way that really resonates with with your journey and your story? I'd say it's more the cumulative contribution that everyone's made. Even even firms that you may think on the traditional spectrum of the maturity of a firm. If, if there's a firm that's kind of a laggard on some things, you have something to learn from just about everyone. So that, you know, there's so many dimensions to running a firm and managing people and managing clients and you know how you engage clients and all that. It's more the building that into your routine. So you're you're talking with those people every single week and seeing the cumulative change it has on you over six to 12 months in terms of the small things you pick up here and there that work and don't work, and then how you kind of homogenize all that into something that makes sense for you. It's just such a fast way to develop, to have confidence in what you do. Because if you're running that firm in a vacuum, I mean, you don't know. There is no, there is nothing to anchor yourself to. You don't know what's, you know, what's the norm. And in my case, I think a lot of people will make big decisions that feel right at the time, but one or two years down the line, they realize wasn't the right decision. And then they have to go back and they're kind of doing this circular thing where they're not quite getting to where they want to go. And so for me, the ability to be able to validate those decisions with 10 other people who have done it before me, I mean, that like that's, that's just invaluable. 
with all your work that you're doing, including the podcast and, and Realize, you've been nominated this year for the 2022 Innovative Practitioner of the Year Award by CPA.com. That must feel like a little bit of recognition for all the hard work that you put into the community. Yeah, no, it's super flattering. I am, you know, totally transparent in the ways that I run my firm. And it's really just to encourage other people to do the same. I mean, we are, we're so far from market saturation on the amount of people out there that do what <laughs> we do. And we all do the same things that there is so much more to gain by going out and sharing your playbook and talking about what you do and getting better collectively. The firm that's protective about their processes and how and how they do all that stuff, there's kind of an underlying implication there that they somehow know how to do that stuff better than everyone else. And so unless mm. unless you're at the top of the mountain on everything, which doesn't seem realistic to me, I think you've got more to gain by talking about it, just putting that mm. stuff out there and and picking up stuff from other people too. I'm sure that that you attract like-minded. Uh, accountants that are, that have the same beliefs that transparency is, you know, more productive for the greater good, right? Like everybody benefits, all the uh, tide lifts all boats, that kind of shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the whole premise. I, and I kind of, I think COVID opened my eyes when when all these firms were going through a new COVID relief bill drops, mm. and tens of thousands of firms stop what they're doing to read the exact yeah. same thing and try to get the exact same insights. Like it's just, yeah. like if you make an analogy to software development, you look at like open source software, you know, how much mm. of software development is based on stuff that everyone leverages, that's well understood kind of foundational stuff. In many ways, there's no aspect, there's no element of that in professional services. Everybody's mm. doing all the same things on their own. And wouldn't it be so much better if, the only aspect you were really managing was that last 10% of your firm that you wanted to be bespoke for breweries or, you know, something that yeah. was very you specific. So it's just, if we're all doing the same things, that's just inherently very wasteful, I think. There you go. An open source accounting firm. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> should, only, should only take 20 minutes to whack up. Oh, sure. We've yeah, got, <laughs> we got, we got millions of pages of documents all ready to go. We've got accounting in a box. We've got, oh, we can do that. Yeah. No stress. You got the, you know, the key to opens the, the benefit of open source, of course, is the contributory nature. You know, everybody has to contribute yep. and has to be responsible for their you know, the committee's responsible for their aspects of work. So, well, there you go. There's a good project to work on. We could, I'm sure Chad would be into that. Yeah. I've thought for a long time, you know, it would be, we ought to have kind of an open bookkeeping standard where, I mean, as soon as you standardize a core set of chart of accounts, I mean, there's so many things like that where if you put a little more structure around it, it eliminates a huge amount of work. So I'm, I'm a hundred percent behind, you know, what are the, what are the, common things that we can simplify so that we can actually do the the stuff that matters. Yeah, no, I get it. All right. We'll let there we'll leave our conversation on a very open note. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> Jason Stat from Brenner and Company. This has been awesome. Thank you for your inputs and uh if there's anything that we can ever do to help and obviously any competitive insight you want to give, <laughs> go for it anytime. We'd we'd love to be able to help. Yeah. Appreciate you having me. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to this episode. If you found this discussion interesting, fun, you'll find lots more to help you run a successful accounting firm at Carbon Magazine. There are more than a thousand free resources there, including guides, articles, templates, webinars, and more. Just head to carbonhq.com slash resources. I'd also love it if you could leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to this podcast. Let us know you like this session. We'll be able to keep bringing you more guests for you to learn from and get inspired by. Thanks for joining and see you in the next episode of the Accounting Leaders Podcast.